I'm so happy to be here this morning and to be worshiping uh, and have honestly just the privilege to bring the word to a community uh, that's meant so much to me uh, and really just feel honored to fill uh, the pulpit that Greg has taught from and I benefited from for so many years. So I'm excited to kind of uh, to dive into God's word with you today and kind of open up and, and maybe see what he has for us. So before we do that, let's uh, take a moment. I just want to pause and just kind of invite God into this moment and pray. So if you would join with me for a moment. Heavenly Father, we ask that you might send your Holy Spirit, that you might open up our hearts and our eyes to see your beautiful truth in your word that we might have a clearer and bigger vision of you. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy. Amen. So we are continuing in the sermon series that we've been doing all about the creed, right? We've kind of been going through it bit by bit, kind of talking about those essential beliefs of the creed, right? The series is called uh, We Believe, these things that we feel are essential for us as Christians to confess. And before we dive into this portions, this week's portion of the creed, I just want to get it all fresh in our mind. I want to open up by reading the creed aloud uh, together as a way of just kind of reminding us where we've been, uh, where we're going to be today, and then where we're going in the future. So you don't have to stand up, but uh, feel free to please join me in saying the creed, and it should be up here on the screen. It begins by saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So that is a bit of a throwback for me. While I was studying at Moody Bible Institute, uh, I had a professor who made us every single day of class stand up. And he's like, all right, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed. And we all had to recite the Apostles' Creed. And, and some people, he, he made us emphasize and kind of shout the line um, on the third day. He rose again from the dead. And then we'd uh, finish the creed out and we'd all kind of chant, Amen. You know, this kind of big, uh, you know, this big sort of lecture hall, a bunch of, you know, students saying that. Uh, it was goofy, it was fun, but it was also his way of kind of like drilling into our mind these truths, of kind of constantly putting them before us and saying these are essential, these are important. Let's get them into our minds so that we're thinking and we're breathing and living these things. The creed, in a lot of ways, was the church's sort of first systematic theology, right? Since then, systematic theologies have gotten significantly longer and fill up big, thick books that nobody wants to read. Um, but the creed was that first attempt at trying to, uh, trying to crystallize what it is that the Bible taught, that Jesus Christ taught in his ministry, and say, here's a memorable way of understanding it, of saying it, and putting it before our eyes and our minds. And actually, the creed was often used in the body and the life of the church during 
baptism. It was something that would have been said by the person being baptized. They would have been in a body of water somewhere, hopefully not in the middle of winter. And they would be there and they're ready to baptize this person. The person being baptized would say the first part of the creed. They would say, I believe in Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And then they would dunk them under the water. And then they pull them back up. The person would then have to catch their breath a little bit. And then they would say the second part of the creed, that part where it talks about Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his coming again to judge the living and the dead. And then they would dunk them back under the water, and pull them back up, and kind of get the picture. And then they would say that last part of the creed, you know, where they confess about the Holy Spirit and the, and the connection that that gives all of us into one body, as to one people. And so this was a way of kind of, you know, emphasizing that this is something that is, is so true and essential to the Christian belief that we would put this in our baptism and that we would break it up into three chunks to emphasize that we are part of the life of the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so this week is our third week talking about that second chunk, talking about Jesus Christ. And so we, last week we kind of talked about his life, his death, and resurrection. And today we're going to talk about his ascension. That sort of little phrase that's in there that says, He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now, as we kind of read that, that's kind of our topic for today. You might ask yourself, why is that important? Like, why did they choose to keep that line in the creed? Why was it deemed essential? Why was it deemed so important? Because, like, honestly, like, what's the question? Like, if it was gone, if it wasn't there, what would we be missing? Would we be missing anything important? Would there be something precious that we're not keeping before our eyes? And so that's the question I want to answer today, is I want to ask and answer the question, what does the ascension mean to me? Why is it so important? And I don't want to just show you why it's important, but I want to show you why it's precious. I want to, hopefully, by the time that we're finished here today, the ascension is something that fills your heart with joy. That as we confess the creed and we say that Christ ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father, that would bring joy overflowing into our hearts as we celebrate that. But as we kind of think about the ascension, I don't know about you, but this is sort of the way I've always kind of perceived the ascension as sort of the epilogue to the gospel story. Right? Like we kind of have, we've kind of picture it as like the final scene of the Jesus movie. Um, Right? We're like, they're all there, they're gathered together, and Jesus, and he's saying some words to his disciples, and and the music score is beginning to swell, and there's like clouds kind of gathering around Jesus, and he begins to ascend into heaven, and he's kind of looking stoically upwards as light shines down. And as that's happening, like the music swells to a final note, and then the credits begin to roll. Right? That's, that's kind of how we kind of picture the, that the ascension. It's just kind of this tag on to what happened. Sort of this kind of like wrapping up the story, sort of a necessary element to be put there. But I think it deserves more attention than that. I think it's more important than that. It certainly is placed as the last thing in the Gospels, but in the book of Acts, it's actually the first thing. It's the thing that's put front and center, and then is the starting for all the rest of the actions of the church throughout the rest of that book. And so, I want to start there today. I want to open up into the book of Acts, and I want to, um, I want to look at what's going on in that passage. 
And before we start in Acts chapter 1 and kind of look at the account of the ascension there, I want to just get our minds at where the disciples were. What was their frame of mind? What were they thinking and expecting about? Because they probably had, let's fair to say, a pretty wild couple months at this point. Um, right? Their teacher, who they had followed for four years and seen perform miracles, had been publicly crucified. And then he was buried. And then three days later, they found his tomb to be empty. And they didn't know where he was. They were freaking out. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts showing up in his resurrected body. And he's teaching them and showing them, this is the significance of why I died. Of why I'm now resurrected. And this had to have just been a total mind shift for them, right? And kind of strange at first. Because Jesus kind of got into this habit of kind of showing up and disappearing out of nowhere. Um, and, you know, he's just going through walls and stuff. But he could, like, sit down and he could talk with them. They could, like, touch his body. He could have meals with them. And so Jesus is kind of calling together this sort of family meeting, as it were. And, and I'm sure that the disciples are excited. They're like, finally, Jesus is going to do what we've really always been waiting for him to do. And that is to overthrow Rome, establish the new Jerusalem kingdom. Like he's finally going to meet our expectations. He's going to do what we want. And we can see that that's what they're thinking because that's what they say in uh, chapter, or verse 1, uh, verse 6 of Acts chapter 1. And so if you read right there with me, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So there, that's that expectation. This is what they desire, they want. And now look at the next verse as Jesus politely says no. Here he says, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There's that great commission. And then in verse 9 he says, And when they had said these things, they were looking on as he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, And said, men of Galilee, why are you standing looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, I don't know for certain what was going through the minds of the disciples as they kind of saw Jesus kind of being ascended into heaven. I'm sure they were kind of a little freaked out, maybe a little disappointed, definitely confused. You kind of get this kind of sort of humorous take where they're just kind of standing there they just kind of don't know what to do and they're like why did he go up there you know like and and I think I think we all are there in some point right like we we too have had those moments where you know I wish Christ was just here I wish I could sit down across the table from him have a very honest and frank discussion about things and and that would be so much more preferable to him being up in heaven doing whatever it is that he's doing Right? I think we kind of can identify with where the disciples were at. Christ isn't meeting their expectations. But if we look just a chapter further in Acts, we find that the ascension has become not something the disciples are confused or upset about, but it's something they celebrate. At the end of sort of the first public sermon of the church, the apostle Peter 
ends and climaxes his sermon in talking about the ascension. He says, this is the important thing. This is the crowning jewel. And so in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 32, this is Peter talking and proclaiming the good news on the day of Pentecost. He says, this Jesus that God raised up, his resurrection, and of that we are all witnesses. We've seen his resurrected body being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Right? He's talking about the ascension when he says that. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all those... All the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain this truth. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. I love how that last verse ends, right? Know this truth for certain. That the lamb who was slain, the savior of the world, is now also the reigning king of the universe. Right? He is one and the same. And this is... This, he's exalting, he's celebrating Christ's ascension and his sitting in power. Now, if you're following along with me in your Bibles or on your phones, you can kind of see as you're reading the text, you'll see that part of this text is sort of set apart, it's kind of uh, condensed down to kind of show that it's like a poetic portion of the text. Or if you have cross-references or footnotes in your Bible, it might tell you that Peter is quoting Psalm 110 which is actually probably one of the most quoted and alluded to and referenced psalms in the entire New Testament. And it's, it's the core, it's the center of the apostles' understanding of who Christ was and where he had gone when he ascended. And so my plan, my hope for the rest of our time together here this morning is I want to open up to Psalm 110, I want to look at what it says there, and I want to draw out three implications. Three things of why the ascension, or what the ascension means to me. So if you would, open up with me to uh, the middle of your Bibles, Psalm 110. uh, And we're going to kind of dive into what it says. We're going to look actually just here at the very first part of the first verse. And I'm going to nerd out just a little bit, so hang in there with me. I promise it's worth it. All right. So verse 1 of Psalm 110 says, That the Lord says to my Lord. Now, if you've ever read this passage, because it's a somewhat famous passage, Jesus quotes it himself, and you've wondered what in the world is going on there. Like, who Lord, which Lord is saying to which Lord, and who are the Lords? Are they the same person, different people? What's going on? And so I want to take just a moment and clear clear this up, kind of see how this kind of makes a little bit more sense. So it's kind of strange for us reading in English, right? Because this was originally written in Hebrew. Um, but if you're looking at your Bibles, uh, and this is kind of a Bible study tip, anytime you're reading in, in your Bible and you see the word Lord, and all of the letters are capitalized in it, it's all caps, that is the English Bible's way of translating the name Yahweh, of translating that specific personal covenant name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. This is referring explicitly to the one true God, right? So then, so that means that the first Lord there is talking about God, God the Father Almighty. And then it says to my Lord, and so that 
Lord, where it's just not, it's not all caps. That word is actually the word Adonai, which uh, is a word or name attributed to God often in the Old Testament. But it's also a word that can be used to refer to just about any sort of Lord or master or someone in power. And this whole sentence is being said by David, right? We at the beginning, if you can see, it says that it's a psalm of David. Uh, yeah, just, just another fun fact. Those attributions uh, above the psalms where, where they say, like, who wrote it, those are part of Scripture. Those aren't, like, something that got added in. Uh, Hebrew Bibles actually count those as verses. Um, and so, what is this first passage saying? What is David saying? So, I want to sort of paraphrase it by saying this, right? We could rephrase that whole verse by saying that the Lord God said to the Lord of King David, right? God is saying something to someone who was the Lord of David, right? And David is this sort of, you know, he was like the pinnacle king. He was the golden age king of Israel. He, you didn't get better or bigger than King David in Hebrewite or Hebrewite Israelite history, man. Um, and so you didn't get bigger than that. He was important. So who who would be Lord over King David, but who isn't also God? Who is this person that's in between them, right? And we can know from the New Testament, from the apostles, and from Jesus Christ using this passage himself to refer to himself, to say, I am that Lord. He was saying to the Pharisees, he's saying, King David, who you have such a high opinion of, was talking about me when he said that the God, Lord Yahweh, said to me to sit at God's right hand. And so we can understand the rest of this whole passage of Psalm 110 to be referring to and describing who Jesus is, what his functions are, and and what he was to do. So if you hung with me through all of that, thank you. Uh, Some of you, I'm sure, thought that was fascinating, and others of you, well, you didn't think it was all that fascinating. But I promise I'm done with all of the language gymnastics. So we're going we're gonna to move on to the next part. and We're going to under- unpack what those three things are that I promised we, we would mention. And so the second part of verse 1 says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And then if we jump down to verse 5, here it says that the Lord is at your right hand. Again, talking about Jesus. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter their chiefs over the wide earth. Man, that's some pretty harsh language. Um, and, and pretty awesome, pretty powerful, pretty kind of jarring. And I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to let Greg talk about it next week. Um, but there is this thing that is repeated in both of those passages, right? It says that Jesus Christ, Lord, is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And so what does this mean, right? So the first implication that I want to... Oh, no, wait. Did I skip something? Well, anyways, we're going to talk about the first, um, the first, 
the first implication, and that is that the ascension means to me that Jesus reigns in power over my life. That's that first implication. And we can kind of see that being drawn out by this reference that Jesus Christ sits at my right hand. Now, we've kind of heard that phrase before. Like, we, we kind of, it's a common one in the Bible about sitting at the right hand. It's a, a position of power, of respect, and prestige. Uh, and if you ever, like, watch, like, a mob movie, you know, like, the Godfather's got, like, his right hand manned, you know. And, and it's like, it's, we kind of get that sense. It's not a phrase that's completely foreign to us. Um, but, like, why? Like, what is it about the right hand that's so important? Like, are we just discriminating against people who are left-handed? Um, and so I was curious, so I'm hoping you're curious, because I'm going to give you an explanation now. So, if we were to go back, and particularly in Bible times, and think about sort of a warrior king, a king who's out on the battlefield, they'd be wearing all of their armor, right? They'd be decked out to the nines, and they would have on their left arm, they would have their shield, Right, to protect themselves here. And then in their right hand, they would have like a short sword or a spear. And that would be their armor. That would, they would be like that. Now, if someone was to attack the king, someone to come at them and try and get them, it wouldn't be wise to come at them from the left side because their shield's there. They are super easily protected, can deflect anyone who comes at them from the left side. So if you wanted to attack the king, you had to come at the, at, through the right side. Right, You're trying to get around his spear or sword. But once you're past that, he can't really get his shield over there. He's vulnerable on his right side. And so to protect the king, they would put the most mighty and powerful warrior on the right side of the king. And that warrior would be standing there and he would have his own shield to lean and protect the king. And he would have his own weapon to be an extension of the king's power, of his attack. And so before anybody ever gets to the king, they first have got to go through this mighty warrior, the person that is the king's right-hand man. And before the king ever attacks anyone, he's having his mighty warrior attack that person first. And so when we're having Jesus Christ described as sitting at this place to the right of God the Father Almighty, we're talking about him having this power, this authority, this sort of rule and reign, being this extension of God's power, of being a mighty warrior, being someone who has control and reign over the world. And that ought to be a comfort to us, right? The same God who has come near to us, who has loved us so, is also the same one who is reigning in power over our lives, I want to bring an application point uh, to this. I kind of want to, why, what, is it, what is it so important about Jesus reigning in power over my life? And I want to jump forward and look in the book of Philippians real quick. So in the book of Philippians uh, chapter, we'll find out what chapter, chapter 3. Um, Paul here is giving an exhortation. And I think this exhortation is is has something for us today. And so here in chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So there's that first sort of command, that exhortation, continue to follow after me to be like Christ. And then he brings this warning that comes in the next couple verses. Verse 18, he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. 
Their God is their belly and their glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. Keep that in mind. With their minds set on earthly things. And then Paul brings about the turn in this exhortation. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. Right? That power that he has at the right hand of God. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4 it says, Therefore my brothers whom I love and I long for. My joy and crown stand firm. Thus in the Lord my beloved. And so what is... Paul saying there. There's so much that we could kind of draw out and this whole passage could use its whole its own sermon. But I just kind of want to draw out something for ourselves that I think is really applicable to our present moment. So Paul is warning about these people who are, who are losing perspective. They're losing sight of their citizenship in heaven. Losing sight of Jesus Christ being that Lord who has power at the right hand of God. And they're focusing on earthly things, right? Specifically in the passages, he's talking about them focusing on, on the food that they're eating, on what they want right now, the immediate things. Um, and those certainly are temptations for us, right? We can get caught up in, in so many day-to-day things and we can lose perspective of the eternal importance of Christ. But I think also for us, in something even more devious, rather than pleasant things deviating or distracting us from Christ and his lordship, is we can become distracted by fearful things, by dreadful things. We can open up our phone every day and we can see the disaster of the day. We can see the uh, apocalypse of the week. We can see what's going to happen. And that can rise up and it can become fearful for us. We can begin to worry. We can begin to stew on that. We can look at the stock market. We can look at the economy. We can look at what our government officials are doing or not doing or who's doing what. And we can become fearful. We can become so fixated on those problems, on what's going on in the world, that we lose perspective. That we forget that really our ultimate citizenship isn't here in this country. It's to a earth or heavenly kingdom that will someday come and wipe away this earthly kingdom. And I think that ought to be a comfort to us. That Christ is our true one Lord. That we do not have to worry about what's happening here. Because Jesus Christ ultimately has power. When you find yourself in a situation where... You feel out of control where you feel like people are doing things that are wrong. That you're, you're frustrated. You don't have an avenue of recourse. You can take confidence that the God who has loved you, that saved you, that died for you is reigning in power over your life. That you do not have to fret. You don't have to run around like Chicken Little and think that the, fe- that the sky is falling. We can have a little bit of Christian swagger. I think we can kind of have something where we kind of say, you know, like come what may... My Lord is Savior. My Lord is King of this world. And let us keep that in perspective. And so let us next time we're fearful remind ourselves that Christ sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That he sits in power. So that is the first implication of what the ascension means to me. But what's the second one? The second implication I want to draw here is that the ascension means that Jesus is a minister on your behalf. 
And I'm getting that from verse 4 out of Psalm 110. Here it says that the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So now, as I read that verse, and if you know who Melchizedek is, you win Bible trivia today. Um, you should, you know, you should try out for a Bible game show or something. Uh, Melchizedek is absolutely fascinating, but we do not have the time or the space to talk about Melchizedek. But that doesn't mean that the, um, the clear meaning of the text isn't right there for us. Like, even if Melchizedek just doesn't make any sense, it's just a funny name. We can still understand what this passage is saying. Because it's describing Christ as a priest forever. An eternal priest. And so to talk a little bit more about that, to kind of show what that looks like, I want to turn forward into the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews picks up this theme as Jesus Christ being a priest, and it's one of the primary ways it describes him. So I'm going to turn all the way to Hebrews. We're going to look in chapter 4, starting in verse, verse 14. And there, here's this beautiful description of who Christ is and of how he is a high priest. Verse 14 of chapter 4 says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Again, there's that ascension. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us stand firm. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw with confidence near the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Right? Draw close to the throne of grace. We have a priest who sits at the right hand. If we flip over uh, to the next couple chapters, we go to chapter 7 of Hebrews. And starting in verse 23, we see a continuation of this theme. Here it says that the former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing office. So they're talking about the Old Testament uh, priests who would have served in the temple. They kind of kept dying, and so they had to keep getting replaced. But here they're contrasting and saying, he says, but of Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Think about like what that is describing about Jesus. Like we can have this idea sometimes that Jesus is kind of just sitting up there and he's just kind of like waiting for the second coming and then he'll do stuff again. But this passage, this whole book is describing Christ as having an acting, ongoing role on your behalf right now says that he is making intercession for you. That you are in his prayers to God the Father. That he is on your behalf. And not only is he ministering on your behalf, but he is someone who we can come to know. Someone we can sympathize with. Someone who we can find healing in. Right? Because Christ knows our weaknesses. Christ has come near And so, if you've ever felt the bitterness of being alone, or wondering whether or not anyone could ever understand the pain that you're going through, or you just feel like you're just isolated, take comfort in that God has come near in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ 
understands, that he can sympathize with us. Right? There is this, um, this beautiful uh, stanza from a poem that I want to share with you. This is uh, probably one of my favorite poems. And this was written by Edward Shalito. And he was a pastor who served in England during both of the world wars. And so this was coming out of the the devastation of two world wars and this trying to wrestle with the suffering that they had gone through. And he writes this talking about Jesus of the scars in his poem. And he says, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds Only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Let those last two sentences sink in, right? But to our wounds, to our pains, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. This is something that is unique to the Christian faith. That we have a God who has not stayed far off, who is not distant from us, who is not unable to sympathize with us, but who has come as near as flesh to suffer and die for us, that he might be a perfect sacrifice. When you go to meet Jesus Christ face to face, you will receive an embrace from hands that still bear the scars of nails, from a brow that still has the scars of a thorny crown. These are the signs. This is Christ saying, this is how much I have loved you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is the most important truth I could probably say today. Is that Jesus Christ has loved you so much that he would die on the cross. That he would give himself for you so that we might be reconciled to him. There was a saying in the ancient church that we ascend through the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ the Son. And through Jesus Christ the Son to God the Father. Right? If, if it weren't for Jesus Christ, we couldn't enter into the throne room. We would have no right to be there. But because Jesus has come and suffered on our behalf, has become human and weak for us, has sympathized with us. We can now, like Hebrew says, walk in boldly to the throne. We can carry with us those hurts, those pains, those things that we feel like we're alone with, that we have no restitution for. We can bring them to a God who truly can minister to them. For we are healed by his wounds. I'm feeling a little bit poetic today, so I'm going to read one more uh, poem. I was not able to find an attribution to this. But this reads and it says, Love moved thee to die. And on this I rely. My Savior hath loved me, and I cannot tell why. But this I can find. We too are joined, and he'll not go in glory and leave me behind. I love the ending of that passage. It says, he'll not be in glory. He will not be at the right hand of the Father, and then leave me behind. And that leads me to the final implication here of the ascension. And that is that the ascension is a promise for me. It is a foretaste. It is a picture of what is to come. And it is a promise. So I'm going to talk about a sport I've never done. uh, Rock climbing. Uh, I've never done rock climbing. Not really, like, except for like, you know, the summer camp or something like that. uh, Because heights just aren't my favorite thing. Um, And so, but... 
as I understand it, like rock climbing, especially in sort of rock climbing that's not in a gym where there's no where there's pads beneath you or something like that. But if you're actually rock climbing on a rock face out in the wild and you're trying to get up there and you're climbing as a team, there's the person who's the lead climber, right? And the lead climber is the one who's the farthest up the rock at any given time. They're the one that is paving the way, as it were. And they have a rope attached to them, except that rope isn't attached to anything above them. They don't have anything above them. They just have this rope attached to them, and to that rope attached below is all the other people climbing up after them. And the job of the lead climber is to kind of navigate this rock space, to kind of figure out what's the route we're going to go. And he has to keep in mind, like, can the people who are following after me make this leap? Can they follow and grab onto what is I'm grabbing onto? And then every so often, the lead climber has to stop and he has to put in an anchor into the wall face, a place where they can kind of clip that rope into place. And that's so that kind of secures the rest of the team to that mountain. And that is a picture of what Christ is for us. Christ is that lead climber who has gone before us, who has set out a path. We can look up and we can see that there is a way forward, that someone has gone before, that someone has made it up there and is securing our way there. Christ and his ascension is a promise of the future It's saying that this world and whatever happens here, the ends of our lives, our frail bodies, are not the final statement. They're not the final ending note of life. Rather, we are united to Christ in his his death, his resurrection, and in his ascension. That we will one day have a glorified body and be part of the restored kingdom that God brings on earth. I think it is so beautifully apt. If you remember earlier, I talked about how the creed is used in baptism, right? And it was, it was done in, in, in three parts. And baptism is that visible sign. It's that visible symbol of the spiritual reality that we are united to Jesus Christ. That we now are dead to sin and we are now brought back to life. We have new eternal life. We are united by Jesus Christ into the life of the Trinity, into the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, Jesus Christ is this promise, it's this guarantee, it's this foretaste of what is to come. We can know that even the best things we taste here on earth are only but a foretaste of what Christ has for us at the wedding wedding feast of the Lamb. That is a true promise. It can give us hope. It is what we look forward to. It redirects our minds. And we can celebrate that. We ought to be filled with joy that God would love us so much that he would welcome us into his family and he would bring us to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so those are the three implications of the ascension. That, that Jesus Christ is reigning in power over your life. That we don't have to be affected by fear. And we can know that God is reigning supreme over whatever circumstances you find yourself surrounded by. And then the second, let Jesus Christ is ministering on your behalf. That we have a God who has wounded himself in order that we might be healed. 
that we can find compassion and love there. And then finally, that the ascension is a promise of what is yet to come. It is what we look forward to. It is that end of the race that we strive. And so, if you would, let's take a moment and let's pray about these things. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your love, for the ways in which you have showed yourself to us. God, we thank you that you would give your only son so that we might be made right with you, that we might be reconciled, that we might be brought from death to life. Lord, I I pray that you would open our eyes today that we would see the beauty of the ascension, that we would be filled with joy at confessing that our Savior sits at your right hand. Lord, I ask that you would give us joy in that, that you would help us to treasure the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that we would trust you in faith amidst our circumstances, that we would see that you are ruling and reigning no matter what is going on around us. Lord, give us the confidence and the comfort of children as we approach your throne. Lord God, might we find healing, comfort, and belonging there. Might we find a salve, a balm for our wounds. And God, give us a hope that looks forward. God, I pray that you would help us to live into that future promise now. That we might know that this is not all. This is not the end. And God, we look forward to your second coming, to your redemption and restoration of creation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.